0: Welcome, everyone. Unfortunately, I can't offer you a snowball fight this week, but I can offer you a big thank you. Thank you to everyone for the money that you contributed over the last couple of weeks towards Taste. Uh, Dave has been able to send off a gift of £5,000 to go towards this new rig that they're hoping to buy. So thank you for your generosity and your kindness. And let's continue to pray for Taste as they hopefully uh, raise enough money from other friends and other churches to be able to buy this new rig. And then just let me mention that at the end of this service, when you're ready to leave, please just stand up and then move directly to the exit, keeping a two meter distance from others. And then later on today, we are uh, meeting again at 6 p.m. online for our evening service and we're entering a section of Matthew's gospel at the moment that dovetails really well with Second Peter and what we're hearing in that book. So I encourage you, if you haven't been following in Matthew, to begin joining in with that. That will be followed by a coffee time online. And Steve has sent an email about that. If you don't have that, just contact Steve and he'll give you the details. And then this Thursday, we're having... Um, prayer online, 7.45 p.m. on Thursday. Again, there'll be an email about that. Now, I realize this is not ideal. I'm very aware of that in terms of the uh, maybe the freedom and the, um, the comfort level of joining an online prayer meeting. It's not ideal, but it is an opportunity for us to pray. Uh, it's one way that we can uh, do something to join for prayer, so I do encourage you to join in with that. That's this thursday that's all i need to mention by way of introduction and information so we're going to begin our time of worship by remembering the truth that we build our lives on as christians the truth that our god is king forevermore the musicians will lead us in this song to be quiet and consider what we've just heard. Lord God, we bow before you. The uncreated one. Before anything else existed, you were there. Perfect in your power. Perfect in your goodness. And now as the creator of all things, You have perfect knowledge of everything that exists. And we know that includes perfect knowledge of every single one of us. You know our circumstances, you know our struggles, you know our hopes and our fears, you know whether our hearts are hot or cold whether they're full of love for you or for something else. You know our hearts and we praise you because you can change our hearts. Where there is sin, you can bring cleansing and forgiveness. Where there is decaying, diminishing love, you can bring renewed love. Where there is faltering hope, you can bring fresh hope. Where there is foolishness and waywardness, you can bring wisdom. Where there is turmoil, you can bring peace. And we thank you for the one who makes this renewal possible, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Crucified, the spotless lamb, buried by the sons of man, rescued by the Father's hand to reign as king forever. This morning, as we praise you in song, as we give our attention to your word, will you renew us? Renew us through the power of King Jesus. Amen. The Bible is full of encouragement for us. It is also full of warning for us. And we're going to read one of Scripture's warnings now. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you know where 2 Peter is, it's about 25 pages before 2 Peter. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, and John is going to read verses 1 to 9 for us now.
1: 2 Timothy 3 1 to 9 Godless in the last days But mark this there will be no there will be terrible times in the last days People will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boastful proud abusive disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, Rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil, evil desires, always learning. But never able to acknowledge the truth, just as Jannes and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of deprived minds who are far as who are who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will never get very far, because, as in the case of those men their folly will be clear to everyone. This is God's word.
0: Our next song is a prayer that God's Holy Spirit, the breath of God, would lead us away from sin and death and into life and obedience. Breathe on me, breath of God you If you turn now to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be picking up exactly where we left off last week, so we're going to read this morning from the middle of verse 10 to the end of chapter 2. At the beginning of the chapter, Peter mentioned false teachers, and now he gives us a pretty detailed description of those teachers, beginning in the middle of verse 10. Bold. And arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet, even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals. Creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. This is God's word. In the last few years, three members of our family have become quite interested in bird watching. I'm the one who's less interested. But even though I'm not so interested, I am impressed, very impressed, when people can recognize what they're looking at. We have a bird feeder in our front garden, and quite often there's a pause between Uh, during breakfast or lunch when we're sitting there while someone goes to get the bird book so they can identify a new arrival on our bird feeder. I suppose you could call the book a bird bible. It tells you all you need to know about birds or at least British and European birds. It might not be so useful in other parts of the world but when it comes to birds, the bird bible helps us recognize what we're looking at. And the actual Bible is equally concerned to help us recognize what we're looking at. Just as the bird Bible describes the marks of a chaffinch or whatever, so the actual Bible describes the marks of a Christian. We saw an example of that in chapter one of Second Peter. Peter described godly qualities that Christians will display. And there are plenty of other places where the Bible gives similar descriptions. But as we read the Bible, we also begin to notice it's interested in helping us recognize ungodly qualities too. I haven't done a mathematical study, but I think the New Testament devotes just about as much space to helping us recognize ungodliness as it does to painting a picture of godliness. The most famous list of godly qualities might be the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Most of us have heard of the fruits of the Spirit. But it's significant that the verses immediately before the fruits of the Spirit give us an equal-sized list of the acts of the flesh. We need to be able to recognize both godliness and ungodliness. And that helps to see the importance of the passage we read a moment ago in 2 Peter. Peter began his letter with marks of godliness. The life of a Christian will to some degree show evidence of growing goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. But in chapter 2, Peter wants to help us recognize the opposite of Godliness. Chapter 1 gives us the marks, or maybe we could say the profile of a Christian. Chapter 2 gives us the marks of an enemy. Now, of course, what Peter talks about here is not all that could be talked about on this subject. No doubt we could find other marks in the Bible. We could go back to 2 Timothy that we read from earlier, pick up the list there. But even if this is not a complete set of marks here, it is still a crucial set for us to understand. And what's so disturbing about this is that Peter is not talking about enemies who are out there. He's talking about enemies who pose as friends. Enemies who make their way into the church. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he said to the church, there will be false teachers among you. He said, many will follow those false teachers. And then Peter described how those teachers and their followers are headed for destruction. And now in our passage this morning, he he wants to help us recognize the kind of person he's talking about so that we won't follow them. And the first mark of an enemy comes in verses 10 to 12. Peter says they are arrogant in the middle of verse 10 bold and arrogant they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings literally literally on the glorious ones I think it's pretty clear by that Peter is referring to angels but it's a little bit harder to decide what exactly Peter has in mind is he saying that these false teachers heap abuse on Satan and evil angels? The kind of angels who were mentioned back in verse 4, who are being kept in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If that's the case, then the false teachers are showing a kind of arrogant triumphalism, like jeering in somebody's face when they're dying. On the other hand these false teachers may be heaping abuse on good angels. In several places, the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament law being delivered by angels. And it may be these false teachers are rejecting the instruction of the Old Testament and slandering the angels who delivered it. It's hard to be sure which Peter has in mind. But in either case, the point actually is the same. Peter's saying those false teachers are rushing in where even angels themselves fear to tread. Peter says in verse 11, Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. So even the angels of God, when they deliver judgment from God, they do not do it with arrogance. So how much more reason then for human beings to show a healthy dose of reverence and humility and holy fear when they deal with spiritual things? Now I'm not talking about a lack of confidence here. As Christians we have very good reason to be confident in what we believe. It is not arrogant to accept and to take our stand on what God has said. So Peter is not promoting a kind of timid, weak, and watery faith here. He is not encouraging the kind of Christianity that won't stand for anything. No, Peter's target here is the kind of brash self-confidence that thinks it has all the answers. It is nothing to learn. It imagines that even the powers of darkness and light are at its beck and call. That kind of arrogance, Peter says, is a mark of ungodliness. And maybe it's helpful for us to see that doesn't always show itself in trying to order angels around. This kind of arrogance can be much more down to earth than that. This same arrogance can come out in an attitude that says, I'm superior. I have it all sorted out. God's word has nothing to teach me. I have the strength to deal with life's physical and spiritual challenges. I can fight those battles and win because I'm the man or I'm the woman. The arrogance Peter is speaking about is a self sufficiency. A self-sufficiency that takes weighty things lightly. But in contrast to that, in his first letter, Peter said we are to live our lives on this earth in reverent fear. Not the kind of fear that doubts God's power or his love or his promises about the future. Reverent fear doesn't doubt God It realizes the truths of Christianity are weighty things. They are eternally significant things. They are things we cannot handle by ourselves. And that realization sobers us. It shows us our dependence on God. And it causes the arrogance and the self-sufficiency to drain away from us. Because we realize we stand before Almighty God naked and hopeless. We stand before him vulnerable to every storm and every pitfall. Unless he clothes us and empowers us. The true Christian recognizes that reality. The enemy of Christianity denies it. And Peter says when we deny our dependence on God, we're not enlightened, we're like beasts that perish. Speaking of the false teachers, he says in verse 12, these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed and like animals, they too will perish. Peter is not weighing in here on the subject of animal rights. In the other places the Bible does have things to say about that. But here, Peter is not arguing whether animals should be caught and destroyed. He's pointing out that animals are ignorant of bigger realities. They walk towards destruction with blissful ignorance. Thinking everything's okay. And Peter says, arrogant human beings are no different. When we think that we're superhuman, we're actually subhuman. We're like animals, not understanding reality, oblivious to the bigger picture. We are most truly human when we recognize our need and turn to God to have our needs supplied. Arrogance is a sign of ungodly foolishness, not godly wisdom. In verses 13 to 16, Peter gives us a second mark of an enemy. They are unrestrained. In these verses, Peter is going to mention specifically a lack of restraint when it comes to food and drink, sex and wealth it's important to recognize the Bible teaches that all those things are good. In fact, the Bible pictures heaven as a marriage feast in a place of gold and precious stones. And here on earth, Christians are able to enjoy these good things better than anybody else can enjoy them. Because we don't look to those things as the be-all and end-all. We do not seek our ultimate fulfillment in feasting or sexing, sex or wealth. We enjoy those things as gifts from our Father in heaven. They are not gods we cling to in desperation. These things can come and go or they can never come at all in our lives. And our joy as Christians will still remain. Because our joy is not based on God's gifts. It's based on God himself. So the Bible's overall attitude to feasting, sex, and wealth is that used in the right way, enjoyed within the right boundaries, these things are good. The Bible's attitude is can be summed up in the words of 1 Timothy. Everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So if that's the Bible's overall attitude to these things. What is it that Peter is putting his finger on in these verses? He's describing lives that are given over to feasting, sex, and wealth where the proper boundaries are being ignored. Look at the middle of verse 13. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. I know it's hard to imagine a group of people feasting together, but believe it or not, people used to do that kind of thing. We used to do that kind of thing as a church family. Although at the moment it seems like another world. And what Peter seems to have in mind here is the meal Christians shared together when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Today we do that with fingernail sized pieces of bread and a thimble sized cup of wine. But the evidence suggests it was a proper feast for the early Christians. And it culminated then in the official bread and cup. So it was a celebration of God's goodness and the gift of his son Jesus. But these enemies in the church are turning it into nothing more than a godless boozing session. That's what carousing is. We find the Apostle Paul rebuking the Corinthian church for exactly the same thing. It's no longer a celebration of God's goodness. It's just a festival of self-indulgence. And Peter says the people instigating this mess are blots and blemishes. In the Old Testament, animals brought for sacrifice were to be without blots and blemishes. So Peter is saying these self-indulgent people are not fit for God's service. They're not pleasing to him. And they're ruining something that is supposed to be pleasing to him. In verse 14 he says these people have eyes full of adultery. They're always on the lookout for a sexual conquest. In another place the New Testament calls men in the church to treat older women as mothers. Mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That's certainly not what these people are doing. Their intentions are to take advantage of others, not to bless them and care for them. Peter says they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. He means the vulnerable, the people who need the most sensitive care, These enemies only see them as an easy mark. Well, so much for their lack of restraint when it comes to feasting and sex. Peter goes on to say in verse 14, they are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam son of Bezer who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who was hired by the Moabites to curse Israel. When the Moabites first asked Balaam to do the job, the Lord told him not to be a fool and Balaam turned the Moabites down. He seemed to have some sense. But when they came back a second time, offering him a handsome reward, if he'd curse the Israelites, Balaam went back to the Lord. As if the reward would somehow convince the Lord it was a good idea to curse his own chosen people. Well then, in disgust at Balaam's love of the wages of wickedness, the Lord told him to go with the Moabites. And then the Lord sent an angel to stand in Balaam's path with a sword and give him a different kind of reward. And it was only Balaam's donkey who saved the stupid prophet by asking him what he thought, what he, thought he was playing at. You can read that in Numbers chapter 22. And the point of the incident is not that donkeys can talk. Peter says here, donkeys can't talk. They are without speech. The point is, even a dumb donkey knew it was stupid to try and curse God's people for money. And on this one occasion, God gave this one donkey the ability to speak in a human voice. So Balaam would know he was being dumber than a donkey. And the serious point is, greed can make people very, very stupid. Notice at the beginning of verse 15. At some level, these false teachers used to know better. But in their unrestrained love of money, they have left the straight way and wandered off. Paul made the same point when he wrote to Timothy. He said, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. along with food, drink, and sex, wealth is a good gift from God. But when our enjoyment of those things turns into craving for those things, when we abandon self-control to have those things, we become less than human, worse than animals, because even animals know when they've had enough. And Peter says a life that is characterized by that lack of restraint is the mark of an enemy, not a true Christian. In the passage on the screen, Peter focuses on the, or Paul focuses on the damage that's done to the individual by all this. They pierce themselves with many griefs. But Peter's focus in our passage is different. He wants to show how this enemy behavior affects the rest of the church. Because arrogance and lack of self-discipline will affect the rest of the church. And so in verses 17 to 18, Peter gives us a third mark of an enemy. They are destructive. In verse 17, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Throughout Scripture, God's instruction is compared to life-giving water. Jesus himself offered people living water that brought eternal life. And a true teacher will bring that living water to the church. They will bring the Word of God and point people to Jesus. But the mark of an enemy in the church is that they bring only empty words. For all their big talk and maybe their great gifts of communication, they're not actually providing living water. They are springs, Peter says, without water. What they say might sound really promising and really impressive, but there's no real substance to it. It doesn't bring life. At best, it's just a mist. But that doesn't mean these people are harmless. What they say doesn't bring life, but it does bring a storm. It does, in verse 18, entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, Peter spoke about the destructive heresies these teachers bring. And here he says the people most susceptible to this empty yet destructive talk are the newest Christians, the least mature Christians, those who are just leaving behind a godless way of life. They've just learned that what was normal to them before was actually the path to destruction. But now these teachers come along and with their empty words and their arrogance and their unrestrained lifestyle, they actually suck the new Christians back into the old life they'd left behind. And so these teachers cause destruction to other members of the church. When someone in the church is a force that moves men and women away from godliness and towards destruction, that person is an enemy. And Peter says those enemies are lost. This isn't so much a mark as it is a simple truth about the condition of these enemies. For all of their arrogance... For all of their self-confidence, they are slaves to sin. In verse 19, Peter says, They promise freedom to others, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Depravity is another word for sin. Wickedness, evil. So it doesn't matter how confident and boastful people are. If their lives are characterized by depravity, They're nothing more than slaves to their sin. They're not progressive at all. They haven't broken through to some new level where godliness doesn't matter anymore. They're just slaves to sin. Headed for hell. Like everyone outside the church. Let's remember that any time we hear someone who professes to be a Christian, but who argues that all roads lead to heaven, that all religions will get you to the same place in the end, or that the Bible is past its sell-by-date, or that all sexual desires are good, and it's harmful to say no to our desires, Or that what the Bible calls sin isn't really sin. That kind of teaching is not progressive. It's regressive. It pushes people away from salvation and new life in Christ. And it shows how lost and enslaved the teachers themselves are. Whether they're teaching that from the pulpit or just by the example of their lives in the church. But what does Peter mean in verse 20? He says, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Peter is talking here about the false teachers. Why would it have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness? Why are they worse off at the end than they were at the beginning? The answer is those who know the truth and turn their backs on it face far greater punishment than those who never knew the truth in the first place. Yes, the Bible says everybody knows enough. To a certain extent, the awareness of God is stitched right into our souls as human beings. And there's enough in creation to show us the reality of God's eternal power and his divine nature. You can read about that in Romans chapter 1. No human being has an excuse for denying God the worship that's due to him. And that is true even if they've never had a Bible or heard of Jesus. The Bible says we all know enough to be without excuse before God. But then how much more inexcusable for those who know about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who know about the way of righteousness and yet turn their backs and choose sin instead. When someone rejects Christ and his righteousness, their future punishment will be worse than those who never knew. Well then, does that mean those people were genuine Christians who then stopped being Christians? Peter's answer is no. They were never true Christians in the first place. Look at verse 22. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. This is the third time in our passage Peter has brought animals into the picture. A sow is a female pig, and in Jewish culture, pigs were unclean. And in the ancient world as a whole, dogs were despised. They were not man's best friend in the ancient world. They were sometimes used, yes, but they were despised. And the point is, I think, You can dress a dog up. You can give him a little jacket and a hat so that he looks like more than a dog. But in the end, he will show he's a dog because he'll do what dogs do. He'll throw up on the pavement. Then he'll give it a good sniff. And maybe he'll even eat it. It's the same with pigs. You can get a pig all spruced up with a pearl necklace and some lipstick. So she looks like more than a pig. But in the end, she will show she's a pig because she'll do what pigs do. She'll spot a mud puddle and she'll do a belly flop in it. And in the same way, Peter is saying, an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of God's people might initially look like one of God's people. But just like a dog, just like a pig, they will show their true nature eventually. The pearl necklace and the lipstick can only hide the truth for so long. Eventually, they will go back to what they really love. The vomit or the mud puddle or the life of sin. When a man or woman receives new life in Jesus Christ, they are not like that. They have a new nature. They're not just dressed up on the outside. They've been made new on the inside. And that new nature means they will persevere in the way of righteousness. And however much they struggle with sin, and we all will, however much we sometimes fall flat on our faces in sin, we do not belong in it anymore. We are not slaves to it anymore. And for all of their failures, true Christians will never abandon Christ and go back to the mud. By God's grace and power, they have a new love in their hearts. And they will persevere to the end. So where does this leave us? Well, it might leave us a bit unsettled. And that's not a bad thing. As we listen to Peter, many of us will be convicted about our own arrogance, maybe. Or our lack of self-control in some area or even the damage our sin does to those around us. For many of us, the Holy Spirit might use this passage to waken us up, like Balaam's donkey wakened him up. But the main aim of this passage is to help us not to be naive. Peter is saying these things, so you and I will not be naive when it comes to people who claim to be Christians But are really just pigs with lipstick on. This passage aims to help you and me be alert. It's here to help us see when enemies are posing as friends, so we will not be led astray by them. People who claim to be Christians, but whose lives are characterized by an arrogance, a self sufficiency, an unapologetically sinful lifestyle and sinful ambitions. Those are not people we want to listen to. Those are not people we want to be influenced by. Those are not people we want to trust. That is true whether that person is a friend at school or a colleague at work, or a preacher on YouTube. Yes, we're not to be judgmental of others, but we are supposed to be careful who we follow. We are supposed to be careful who we get our ideas from, whose habits we imitate, Just because someone has a big pulpit to stand behind and a big Bible to wave around, just because somebody says they're a Christian, that is not all the evidence we need to accept their teaching or to follow their example. We need to look a bit more closely. Does that person have a reverence and a humility when they deal with holy things? Do they put themselves under the authority of God's Word? Or do they live like they're the highest authority? Does that person take sin seriously? Are they committed to fighting it in their own lives? Or do they excuse it? Do they embrace it? Do they wallow in it? Does that person bring Jesus? And do they bring his life giving power to the relationships they're involved in? Or do they bring poison and destruction? Does that person bring living water through the things they do and say? Or do they bring a harmful storm into situations? Let's ask those questions. Not so we can write somebody off the first time they mess up. But so we can be wise. And find the right people to follow. Now of course the one we follow ultimately is Jesus Christ. But we need to recognize the people we listen to and the people we admire do have a massive impact on our lives, for good or bad. The people around us, the people we allow to influence us can be a huge help to us in following Jesus or they can be a massive hindrance. So let's think about the people who currently influence us. and Let's ask God to help us see clearly which influences in our lives are good and which are bad. And then let's commit ourselves to being men and women of the truth. Men and women who are serious about Jesus Dedicated to God's word. And who are pursuing godliness in every part of our lives. None of us have achieved it. But are we pursuing it? Let's commit to that. Our last song reminds us of God's great love for us. Because that's what spurs us on. It speaks about God's great love. It speaks about his life changing grace. And the song ends then with a commitment from us that we will live for our living God. Here is love. I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen.
2: Will is known, our traditions shift like sand while His truth forever stands. We will live by faith alone, clothed in merit not our own. All we claim is Jesus Christ. And his finished sacrifice Glory be, glory be to God alone Through the church he redeemed And made his own He has freed us, he will keep us till we're safely home glory be Saved by grace alone, undeserved yet freely shown. No accomplishment on earth can achieve the second birth. We will stand on Christ alone, the unyielding cornerstone nations rage and devils roar still he reigns forevermore glory be will keep us till we're safely home. Glory be us till we're saved.